You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi there, Served Up community. Julie here. I am so pleased to introduce you to an incredible guest, Karen Hoskin. Karen is not only an inspiration for women in the wine and spirits industry, she sets the bar high very high at over 10,000 feet where she crafts Montagna rum in the mountains of Crested Butte, Colorado. Karen shares with us her passion for rum and how she crafted Montagna distillers as a source for good through the rigorous international B Corp certification. Karen doesn't just talk the talk, she walks the walk to ensure that she gives back to her community, her employees, and leaves very little behind in waste, down to every drop. Now sit back, grab your favorite Montagna rum daiquiri, and get inspired. Karen, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are really happy to have you on our show today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you guys. Yes, me too. It's so great to chat with you again after our session that we had on Women of the Vine and Spirits. I love any opportunity that I get to talk with women who are working in this industry alongside me because there's just always so much that we're doing that's innovative. And um, I love hearing from everybody. Absolutely. So Karen, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you've had a really, um, you did spend some time in India. um, And I think that's kind of where you found your passion for rum. But tell us a little bit about the experience there and, and how you got to where you are today. Yes, that was a very long uh, and winding road, to say the least. So when I was in college, I went to India to study Hindi and um, became a Hindi speaker, which I still look back on that. And I'm like, what was I thinking? What was I doing? But it just was something I got obsessed with. I had been living with a Hindu family for about six months and got to take a little trip over Christmas. You know, I was like, what do I want to do with my extra time? And so I went to Goa, went to the beach and... Anybody who's imagined what living with a traditional Hindu family is like, there's, there are no cocktails. There's no uh, happy hour anywhere. There are no bars down the street. Um, you know, there was just no alcohol in my life. And even at, a, at that age, I still had grown up being a bartender in great bars on the coast of Maine. And I wanted a cocktail, dang it. <laughs> so um, in Goa, it was a Portuguese colony and I went and sat at a couple of bars and they kept trying to give me ports and they would try to give me wine. And I was like, no, I want a cocktail. And finally, a bartender put a sipper of Old Monk rum in front of me. And I found my passion in that moment. I mean, I don't really drink that much. um, But when I do, it's always pretty much always a premium, well-made, consciously crafted rum. 
And that was the path that began uh, my way toward becoming a rum distiller myself, which was more than 20 years later. But it was always kind of in the back of my mind that I wanted to make rum myself. And now I do it in the mountains of Colorado, which people think is crazy, but it's not because there's this very long esteemed tradition of distilling rum in the mountains uh, down in Central and South America. So it's actually not that wild a notion to make rum in the mountains of Colorado. Yeah, I always say, you know, rum is fun, you know, so anytime you can have a drink of rum or be associated with rum is certainly, you know, a wonderful thing. I think that it's really interesting that you have started a distillery where you have, you know, in in the mountains. Can you share a bit about your location, a bit about the tour, you know, um, where your distillery is set? So we are in Crested Butte, Colorado, which is at nine, almost 9,000 feet up in the Rocky Mountains. So we're in the southwest side of the Rockies, um, which means we're not kind of where a lot of people think of the Rockies, which is more like Rocky Mountain National Park and and outside of Denver. We're about four and a half hours outside of Denver, um, way up in this gorgeous valley. Um, And, you know, I really learned when I was in Colombia and Guatemala Panama, that there is this esteemed tradition of making rum at high elevation because it benefits the entire process from fermentation to distillation to aging. Um, And as soon as I learned that on some of my travels, I thought, oh, that's, you know, I'm, I'm doomed now. I'm going to be a rum distiller for the rest of my life because I don't have to go to the beach. You know, I like the beach, but I don't want to live at the beach. And I like um, being in beautiful places on the ocean, but that's not where I'm a mountain girl. You know, I want to be able to go ski and climb a mountain and go for a trail run. And so, um, Crested Butte is just a perfect place. But if you'd asked me to make whiskey, I would have said, "Mm, no, thank you. If I, you know, if you'd asked me to start a brewery, I would have said, "Mm, I don't drink beer. No, thanks. Um, so Rum is just being able to merge my love of the spirit of rum and the tradition of rum and the just amazing kind of community that is the rum world with the place that I want to live. Like that was the aha moment for sure. Well, I'm glad you called yourself a mountain girl because (laughs) I feel the same way. I was like, I don't know if that if I should refer to her as a mountain girl, but you did. So that's great. Were you always a mountain girl? Like, did you grow up in the mountains or it was just a calling for you or something you fell in love with? I grew up in rural Maine in a tiny little town um, (laughs) that was, you know, an old mill, like woolen mill town, 5,000 people. Um, So when I would go mountain climbing in my hometown, which I did all the time, I would get up to maybe like a thousand feet above sea level, you know, maybe. 2000 feet above sea level. And so I didn't really know uh, until much later, until I was in high school, what it meant to really be able to climb a a mountain, a true mountain. So I um, went for the first time to Colorado when I was in high school. um, And I was actually on a ski, like a backcountry ski trip with my school. And um, gosh, I thought, okay, this is what skiing is supposed to be like. No offense to my, my home state of Maine, but that is not skiing compared to (laughs) where I live now. And so, yeah, I've always really been into the mountains. I've been into hiking. 
Um, very outdoorsy, I guess you could say, as my number one focus in life. Um, I'd much rather be outside if I could all the time. In the same way, I love Mother Nature so much. You know, I try to bring Mother Nature into my home actually as much as I possibly can. So I, I love that about you. That's very cool. Can you talk a bit about what it's like, um, you know, just being a woman and really breaking into the rum industry? It's interesting that you asked me that today because I was asked by Discus yesterday to help host the Rum Summit at the Discus uh, conference in June. And, you know, of course, every time people ask me to put together, say, a panel or a presentation or some sort of educational opportunity, I always really want to look within my group of colleagues to make sure that we're inviting the women that we're inviting the people of color that are so established in my business. Um, and I, gosh, I suddenly was like, what's going on? It feels like there's a decline or a diminishment of the number of women and, you know, participants, black and indigenous and um, Hispanic. And I, I just thought this is not what it felt like two years ago. And I thought, well, maybe that's the impact of COVID. Um, but when I started almost 14 years ago, so it would be 14 years in April, there were no women and there were um, literally, I mean, in the rum world, yes, there were, there were people of color all around the Caribbean, but they weren't owning companies. They weren't head distillers at that stage. There were a couple of amazing blenders um, that I can still point to, like Lorena Vasquez from um, Ron Zacapa, uh, Joy Spence from Appleton. But um, yeah, it's just, it's been a really interesting process of coming to recognize how many barriers have existed um, in the business and trying really hard to bring up some of my fellow folks who haven't had as many opportunities or who have found the opportunities they've had to be more limited um, or their upward mobility more limited. So I've worked really hard to not just accept the status quo, so to speak, you know, we're not just going to say, oh, this is what it's like in rum, or this is what it's like in American craft spirits, or this is what it's like in, you know, the alcohol beverage world. Um, really, it's been a commitment on my part to agitate for um, more representation, more opportunity. And yet not just be that annoying kind of voice in the background that people are always like, ah, I wish we could stop talking about that because I do too. I'd love to stop talking about it. You're hundred percent right. And it, it starts with bringing awareness, you know, to um, the playing field. And I think that what you're doing is, you know, you're a trailblazer, not just for the rum category, but, you know, for all craft spirit um, entrepreneurs and, and owners, because we know it is a challenge to break into this industry if you're not, you know, if your family hasn't owned the distillery for for generations. I mean, that's a big part. I think a lot of people don't realize it's it's a very family. I think it's one of the reasons why I love it so much, too, because you do get um, definitely that part of the culture. But for women and people of color to actually be able to even just own your own distillery, forget about having your own brand, but having your own distillery. And, and it's, it's a lot. Um, and I know that you've made some really great moves uh, throughout the year to get you to where you are. And, you know, from starting your own craft distillery and then really 
identifying that you were ready to scale, right? And and tell us about that process of making that choice and and looking out and being, you know, one of the the first recipients of the female venture fund from Constellation. There were a lot of moments I I should say in my in my career where I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. Uh, I'm I'm growing too fast or I don't have capital in the bank to expand my distillery or, you know, everybody wants me to be everywhere all the time to, because they're, they're trying to have diversity on their panels. And, um, but they don't necessarily want to pay me what I'm worth or give me a hotel room. Um, but they'll certainly give that to my male colleagues in a heartbeat. Um, and so it, there were a lot of moments when I thought I'm not, I'm just going to have to throw in the towel. Um, and being kind of a geek about research, I guess I started researching what happens in the world of venture related to women. And, uh, so you figure everybody who wants venture capital has to ask a hundred times. Um, and if you are only getting three to 4% of the total venture capital, imagine how many times you have to ask in order to get a venture deal in order to get investment. Um, and so I, I got pretty dejected about my my potential to raise the capital that I needed to grow. Um, and then I met Jen Evans, who at the time was the head of the venture portfolio at um, at Constellation Brands, and she had just launched the Female Founders Fund, so hundred million dollars over ten years to support women founders. Uh, you know, who weren't getting a fair shake in the venture world or the banking world or the distribution world or the, you know, we could go on for days. Jen and I really shared a vision uh, of what we thought was possible. And we thought that if brands founded by women could get some capital behind them, that we could show what we were capable of. And then, of course, you know, you throw at me like a, a pandemic and you know, um, supply chain challenges and glass shortages all in the middle of that. It's a miracle that my company was able to grow during all of those uh, crazy challenges. But Jen and I really shared a vision and and she added um, a few years later, the uh, a Founders Fund for Black and uh, Black founders primarily, but also founders of color. There's there's an, an Indian family that's now part of that fun, venture fund, which was, of course, you can imagine for me, so exciting because that takes me back to my origins as a company. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a watershed moment. Um, I think we still have a lot of work to do in this industry in general um, because you can toss money at a brand, but if we can't give the brand time and if we can't give the brand the um the support or maybe uh you know technical assistance or things like that. So I have I have a dream of someday when maybe I'm not running a distillery 24-7 um, that I could get more involved in in the ways in which we bring these companies to life. Um, because it's not just straightforward. It's not just money. It's never just about money. It's about uh breaking down barriers and breaking down barriers and kicking down hurdles takes years. It's not something that happens right away just because you handed someone some some funds. No, I mean, the climb is real and the blocks are real and they're definitely still here. We have so much work to do as women to 
have the spotlight shined at us when we raise our hand to be taken seriously, right? In order to move the ball forward for us personally and for the companies that we work for. What were some of the more like surprising biases that you encountered when you were entering the spirit world? That's such a good question. (laughs) Golly, 17 different stories came to my mind. uh, And I know we don't have time for all of them. So You know, I think more recently in my world, and, you know, it's easy for me to go back in time and tell you the really the stories that would curl your toes from my early days. But more recently, what I've found is that every path seems to lead back to the same problems. So, you know, if we're trying to change the way decisions are made, you have to change the decision making entities. So, if you have a board of directors, that's all. 50 and 60 year old white men, and you're trying to encourage uh, venture capital and funding for women that are, you know, 30 and 40 and 50 years old, or women of color or LGBTQ women, and then gosh, LGBTQ women of color, it just, they cannot recognize you. They can't look out into that room when you're pitching and recognize you because nothing you're doing and the ways you're doing it don't make sense. They're not familiar to what they learned in biz school back in, you know, 1990, 1980, whatever. So one of the things I'm really, I always encounter in every single thing I do is these decision-making entities that have not changed. So there's a lot of lip service. There's a lot of, we wish to be different. We want, we recognize the need to be different. We recognize that, you know, women deserve a better shake or people of color deserve better opportunities, but the actual execution is so flawed and so antiquated um, and you always will bump up against it Um, or maybe not. Maybe my, you know, my, my children's generation won't always bump up against it, but I have not seen a ton of change. It's like, Every time I think I'm seeing change, it kind of defaults back to this comfort position. And so I'm, I'm not 100% sure how to solve that problem. I wish I had just a magic wand to seat at every board of every venture capital entity in the United States and on every decision-making board of every bank. I mean, I just incur- encountered this when I was getting a mortgage on my house. You know, it's like, it's so hard to, to change these institutions and they need that's really where it's going to have to begin in order to trickle down downhill. But there are these amazing venture organizations that are all women that are only funding women in tech and things like that. So I think that's exciting. That's an exciting development. Uh, But now again, being almost 14 years into this, I would have thought I would see more change by now than I, than I do. Yeah. You, you bring up a great point. I, I still remember, you know, over, 10 years ago, complaining to my husband about, you know, and and at that time I had just had my son and, you know, we didn't have maternity leave at that time. You know, it was just paid, it was unpaid time off. You, You had to take FMLA. And, and I remember just always bringing up my frustrations and look, you could just complain about it or work hard and get your you know, get yourself to a position where you can actually impact change. Cause that's the only way it's going to happen, you know? And, and to this day, you know, 12 years later, it's, um, it's the same to your point. Right. And, and when we can start moving more women, more people of color, women of color into these 
decision-making positions, and I'm glad you bring up boards, it stops, right? That's where the ceiling, that's that glass ceiling are the people that are making the decisions. And, you know, I love that some states, I I believe California, and and I think even Washington now, there is a minimal um, requirement of women to be on board. So it's starting to happen. And we think that we've made so much progress, but really there's so much more work to do. And I just want to recognize not only are you a female founder breaking into this industry and bringing rum back on the map, you know, and and everybody remembering how amazing rum is. And it's not just this mass produced product that you make, you know, sweet cocktails with, that it is really something special. You're all, and, and outside of being a woman, you're doing something so innovative in the industry by being a B Corp certified organization. And I just, I think that's how we met um, because I saw that you were B Corp certified and I'm like, oh my God, I got to learn about this. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you that Montagna is a B Corp certific- certified company and what that means to the community that you touch and impact? Well, I'd love to just take one step back to the conversation that we were having before, because, you know, it it just happened three months ago. I was down in Texas and I was working with my sales rep in Texas who, you know, is this very intelligent, um, very capable young sales, you know, professional. And we went into a large, um, into a large retailer and, you know, I was talking with the owner of the retailer and, we were just joshing around, you know, talking about Montagna rum. And he points to my sales rep and he says, as long as you send her in here in that skirt, I'll buy your rum. And I just like literally my job was on the floor, but mostly I felt awful that I was asking this person, this, you know, young, she's young and to do this work and to subject herself to that and not say a word, because what do you say? then you're not going to end up getting that deal. You're not going to end up getting that placement. You're not going to end up getting your, um, you know, your end of the month bonus, et cetera. Like it just, you're not going to make your quotas, et cetera. It was so astounding and disheartening to me. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of the other end of the spectrum of there. Uh, we're talking about boards of directors and then we're talking about just basic human respect. Um, but and he sorry. probably thought he was giving a compliment, right? Oh, he and so he was, sure. oh so my sure. God. I and he was, remember you know, those kinda, days. He kind of hit me like I was the old lady, you know, like, oh, you, you get what I mean. She's, you know, you're 50 something. She's like 20 something. Send her. Oh but anyway, back to your, your actual question. <laughs> You know, it was part of that was all wrapped up in becoming a B Corp because being a B Corp isn't just about environmental practices. It's a huge part, our environmental practices, which I've had so much fun with and has been one of the most satisfying, um, beautiful things I've gotten to do in my career. And I can tell you a few stories about that. But um, but also the human factor of business is so important to B Corps. You know, how, what are we asking people to do? Where, how are we taking advantage of, of the human factor or not? You know, how, and COVID for me has just literally turned every single thing I've wanted to do upside down. So, you know, I've always prided myself on being a particular type of employer in a uh, mountain town paying higher than average wages 
in a seasonal economy, employing people year round, doing lots um, of, you know, work with providing innovative benefits that make people want to stay longer, et cetera. Um, Nothing that I have done for, for all these years has felt normal or graspable in the last two years. I felt like I just was standing on a field of quicksand. You know, I've had my longest time employees who were super well paid with fantastic benefits, who I know love their jobs, move on because uh, they could, you know, stay home and write a book because their partner was making more money or their, you know, investments were making more money or whatever. And so nothing has felt normal to me at all um, over the last couple of years. However, that is a huge part of being a B Corp is to analyze that and try to figure out, well, what do we need to do that's new? So we added this year some benefits around um, being able to go back to school. If that's what's driving some people to feel like they're getting more out of life, then we can help them to go back to school or help them with some tuition reimbursement you know, adding things, adding more robust insurances, like short-term disability for some of, for people who have long COVID or people who, you know, in my world who get, you know, they fall off their mountain bike or they uh, do a Superman flying uh, crash on skis or whatever it happens to be just trying to really enhance all of that. Um, So, you know, one of the really fun things that I've been working on just this week is like, how to extract from our stillage from, you know, when the distillation process finishes, how to extract certain solids that we can then put in our biodigester in a more energy efficient way. Um, You know, it's just literally every single thing where we've been designing a cooling system that we don't want to use glycol, like most everybody in the cooling world uses. We want to use more energy efficient and more uh, environmentally sustainable options for cooling. So the B Corp is just simply a third party to say, yes, you know, all these things she says that she's doing, she actually is doing it. She's not just hoping you're not going to stop by and look um, and call her on, on it. If she's not like, we really have a very big commitment to and a very big um, responsibility to keep, to be transparent about what we do and to keep doing it and to not, we've made a lot of changes in the company in the last year, um, really driven by our B Corp status to be more zero waste. I mean, if you can be more than zero, I guess, to, to reach being zero waste, which is so ungodly hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And to keep employees in an un, you know, in a difficult employ- employment environment, to keep them excited about these commitments, and uh, so yeah, I could go on for days, but that's that's the nutshell of our B Corp. I think that that's incredible. It really is just your commitment to your staff, to your team, to the opportunities you're giving to them, to the better benefits, all of it. You don't always hear with a with a smaller distillery or even with a smaller company. So your commitment to that is huge. And I think that's what's going to give you the longevity that you absolutely um, deserve within this industry. Can I ask you something about cocktails? Because I'm a huge fan of rum. I write books and I always include rum in my books and my articles. Like I said before, rum is fun. 
What is your favorite rum cocktail, Karen? We should have started the whole show drinking one. (laughs) (laughs) Except it's dry January and I haven't had a sip of alcohol since January 1st. Ah, It's, you know, now I, I do that mostly because I just like to, you know, I like to prove to myself every year that I can. My mom was an alcoholic. My grandmother was an alcoholic. I'm really sensitive to the habits that form uh, over time. So, so my absolute favorite rum cocktail is a classic daiquiri. Always, always. It has been for years. I've traveled so many parts of the world tasting different classic daiquiris. You know, sometimes you put a little bit of Jamaican funky rum, like a little overproof, or you do a you know, French agricole style rum, or you do something more like I make, which is just a very light, very pure uh, white rum, you know, made from American grown sugarcane. But the holy trinity of rum, you know, that lime, a touch of sugar and rum, it's just, you can't beat it. And it's so simple. Anyone, I think if they care about good ingredients can make a beautiful daiquiri really easily. I I used to make really complicated cocktails. Um, my, one of my most popular cocktails at my own bar is the Maharaja, which has like nine ingredients in it. It's beautiful, but, uh, it takes a lot of time and not everybody wants to put that time in. So I love a good daiquiri. I love a tea punch, um, which is like a daiquiri on steroids with, you know, an aged agricole, uh, dark, you know, a little bit darker rum. Um, but always just that simple. Oh, and I'm really right now into making rum sours with lemon and egg white. (laughs) So again, super simple, just lemon, egg white, a touch of simple and uh, a dark rum and shaken and really foamed up and poured beautifully and uh, also really easy to make. Oh, that sounds so delicious. My favorite rum cocktail is also a daiquiri. So I was really excited when you said that because it's just the simplicity of it is just beautiful. And it's one of those cocktails that really allows the spirit to shine through, you know, and you can definitely play with seasonal ingredients with that cocktail as well by just adding a little strawberry in the summertime or, you know, pumpkin and some spice in the fall. What I want to ask you, because you do live in a ski town, are you making any hot toddies as well? I, I do love a good hot buttered banana rum. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. With that like Gaffard <laughs> banana liqueur. Um, yes. So we do. We make a ton of hot cocktails in my bar here in downtown Crested Butte. People come down off the mountain um, ready for something hot. I, you know, I have always really loved the again, lemon, I don't know. It's the citrus for me. So I'm not much of a sweet person. So a lot of like hot toddies and a lot of, um, hot buttered rums, they end up for whatever reason, getting a little sweet for my personal palate. Although we make a lot of those for our customers. Um, but what I really love is like dark rum, strong on the dark rum, a bit of fresh squeezed lemon and a tiny touch of honey. Um, and just, you know, heated to steaming and, um, you can put a little, you know, Anna anise, anise, however you say it, um, or a little bit of cinnamon stick in it or something like that. Um, just to bring up a little spiciness. But when you were just talking about daiquiris, I was thinking that my favorite variation on a daiquiri is, uh, spicy bitters. So I'm, 
we make a line of bitters at Montagna that it's, you know, like pineapple habanero or cherry black pepper or um, cucumber jalapeno. And uh, just like five drops on the top of a classic daiquiri. So good. And just brings up that little bit of, I call it spicy lipstick, you know, where you feel the spiciness on your lips, um, but not so much like all the way down your whole system. So, yeah. And, and so then you take that warm cocktail and add like a little cayenne pepper on the top. And it's just fabulous. I think I like everything spicy. Yeah. Bitter and spicy and sour. That's kind of, that's my style too. Um, you know, I, I love, you know, citrus makes everything amazing, right? It, it's like such the, the perfect ingredient. And, you know, thank you for sharing um, what dry January means to you. Cause we've been talking a lot about mindful consumption. Um, we had uh, one of our uh, path, past guests, um, Kathy with a balanced glass. And, you know, she really talks a lot about mindful consumption. And, you know, we always talk about it in the industry because we do have a, you know, fiduciary duty to promote responsible drinking, especially legal age drinking. And, and we do a lot of work for, you know, schools, making sure that, that we're promote, you know, that we're really um, preventing underage drinking. But I think there's a lot of work that we need to do with, you know, at age drinking, right? And and I really like the idea of mindful drinking. And I feel like the way that you explain the cocktails and explain the flavors that, and you know, and, and just like that warm cocktail, it is really mindful because you can really taste the flavors and, and really enjoy what you're drinking versus just throwing them down. And it is a problem in our industry. And you know, just like many other things with gender biases and, and racial biases, you know, I think it is that the elephant in the room and, and me personally, I, I did, I'm not doing a dry January, but I am trying to do like a one and done. So like I have one drink and then I'm done so that I know that I can, I don't need the other ones. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, with that, what advice do you give others in the industry, other women that are kind of on that? on a similar journey as you that, that really haven't gotten to that next step and they're feeling some of the frustrations that you felt early on, whether that next step in, in, in your business, what, what kind of advice would you give to them um, based on what you've learned now? Such a really good question. I've been actually thinking a lot about this for many reasons. One is because I feel like my company is at yet another juncture which, you know, at some point I'm like, can I be done with the junctures? <laughs> Could I just be like on some sort of easy road? Um, but we just finished this massive expansion. So we're now 10 times more capable of producing rum than we were two years ago. Um, I just sold my bar and restaurant um, on the 23rd of December. So, you know, just a few weeks ago. Um, because I came to understand that having a big bar and restaurant, especially during COVID, was like a huge distraction from everything I need to be paying attention to. And so someone else gets to make all the food for the little children, <laughs> and I will make the cocktails for the grownups. Um, so I now have a new bar that I just opened on December 15th, and it's so pretty and um you know, it's just, it's modern and clean and the lighting is gorgeous and the artwork is gorgeous. You know, I know I shouldn't be saying all this stuff about my own bar, but it's 
we walk in, you would agree. And so I don't know that we ever really get a chance to just sit back and rest on our laurels and just say everything, you know, everything's churning along without me having to be constantly on top of everything. But what I can say from an advice perspective is that it's usually the moments when I am the most stressed out and most overwhelmed that I'm on the cusp of the biggest positive moves for the company. And so those are often the moments when I want to get in my car and like drive to Mexico and be like, see ya. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if I can push through and just take some deep breaths and meditate in the morning and just, you know, get, not give up in those moments. Those are the most, those are the, the junctures that I'm talking about where the next big thing is on the other side. Um, I think a lot of us get to that most stressed out moment and that's when we throw in the towel. I've seen it again and again with my fellow craft distillers in the U S you know, you're like, Oh, you were just like, everything was so good. And now you just closed or you walked away or you quit or you, whatever. Um, And so I'm trying really hard to just learn that those are key moments and to breathe through them. But some some days, I'll tell you, it's it's challenging. Yeah, I think we all feel that at some point in our career. So I appreciate that advice. I think that's great advice for our listeners and for Julie and I. You know, I think it's great advice to not throw in the towel. Being a woman in our industry does come with some challenges. And we did talk about some of the biases, right? For sure. And I've told a story too many times on this podcast that I care to tell, but I'm going to tell it again. You know, like when my mother was pregnant with me and a long time ago, not going to date myself, she worked for a national laboratory. When she was pregnant with me, she was, um, they told her that, you know, rather than you going on a leave, which they didn't have, you'll be fired. And so you can imagine, then they said, we'll throw you a baby shower. And my mom said, kind of screw that. Instead, all the women kind of came together and burned their bras outside instead. So coming from that bloodline of really, when I was in the womb with my mother, you know, just really fighting for women's rights and seeing how our industry can be a bit toxic at times as well. What are some positive things that you have seen, some positive changes that you have seen during the lockdown, during COVID, during the third wave of the pandemic, whatever you want to call it, that we're having today? Because I know that I have seen some good changes Mm -hmm. um, happen in our industry. I know that I'm hoping no time soon that I have to go outside and burn my bra in the street, right? Because some changes are happening. So can we talk about that? You know, some some good things that you've seen. Absolutely. There's been so much good. And, you know, I think um, one of the things that I was really aware of before COVID hit was that if I was going to sell a bottle of rum, that I couldn't do it the way some of the bigger, you know, more established brands got to do it. Um, They could take up a lot of real estate. They had a lower price point. They had bigger programs with distributors, et cetera. So I knew I just couldn't compete. There wasn't enough shelf space. There wasn't enough real estate um, for all of us. And and why put the little tiny, you know, beautiful, but tiny rum from Colorado that nobody on the other side of the transaction has ever heard of on the shelf? Like why give that a chance? 
But what I had learned was that online and uh, delivery and, you know, anything interfacing with the internet was where we could talk to, we could have an audience with, with our customers. They could read about the awards we had won or the philosophy behind the company or what, you know, read a third party review or something like that. And so that was, you know, three, four years ago that I was like, we have to really take advantage of that channel of distribution. COVID hit and thank God we had because all of a sudden everything was changing and um, people were no longer stepping in mass into a liquor store and buying directly off the shelf. They were using different methods to get access to their alcohol um, and delivery and online retail was a really big one. And I think that saved us um, that we had made those investments and those commitments years before, because if we hadn't, you certainly weren't going to find it easy to get set up in the middle of the pandemic when everybody was suddenly scrambling to be online. So I found that, you know, the transition to online retail and delivery retail um, of alcohol beverage has been hugely beneficial to small brands like mine. I have also, you know, I what I worried I would miss the most would be the many of the events that I do. So you know, I would travel around and go to Tales of the Cocktail and go to the rum festivals. And and I worried that not being able to engage that way would really harm us as a brand. There was such an interesting, beautiful pivot to, to this. Like, we are so good at this now. We're so much better at sitting on Zoom and talking to each other and having really legitimate conversations. My UK distributor, because the UK has some really interesting things that, that they can do that we can't do in the US. They would send out these, these packs of 50 mLs um, and you would sign up for an event and you would get a pack of 50 mLs in the mail. And then we would all jump on, on Zoom and have these like amazing tasting events. And I would have like thousands of people on them. So for me to be able to reach and and connect with a thousand people in one sitting without getting in my car, without getting on an airplane. It was such an amazing, amazing sustainability improvement for our company in terms of our our carbon footprint. Um, everything about COVID in many ways has benefited us as a B Corp because we're no longer having to offset so much travel and so much moving staff around. And, you know, I'll miss that when we have to get back on the road. I'll miss the the efficiency of it. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, and I'd have to agree with you. Those are two incredible takeaways that we've had from the pandemic, you know, just the the adoption of the internet and, you know, and online and e-commerce. I know as an organization, we've been working for the last few years to get our commerce platform at Southern Glazers going. And then it took a pandemic and all of a sudden our adoption numbers are sky high. So um, I think everybody got with the program, but, you know, Zoom has been very special and being able to like have this conversation with you and and sharing, you know, a very, um, intimate dialogue and being able to connect so far away. I mean, we all had Zoom, but we never used it and we never mm-hmm. turned that camera on, you know, so it really is special. And I think of all the connections that that Bridget and I have been able to make over the pandemic. So we're super excited to see what you do next. And my head's already spinning with, 
you know, just the internet and that you guys have been so forward thinking there. And it's not going to be a short answer, I'm sure. But have you looked into this whole NFT and and Web3 metaverse um, that we are entering um, in the next few years? I mean, speaking of Constellation, Robert Mondavi, um, they announced an NFT for a couple of their wines. I don't know. Have you explored any of that yet? Funny that you mentioned this today because I just before this interview was having a meeting um, and, and this came up um, and I have only so my son is 23 and he um, just got his he's a certified financial planner. He knows way more about all this stuff than I do cryptocurrency and NFTs and everything. And so I, I really literally just defer to him and tell me what do I need to know, which is such a, you know, old response. And I try not to be that person. I'm like, just tell me, what do I need to know? But he's so tapped into a different world. Um, So he started a company, um, shameless plug called Hoskin Capital. um, And he does these little two minute, one minute TikTok videos where he talks about all of this. So that's where I get most of my good information. Um, But I do, you know, what I was saying in this meeting today was, anything, literally anything that puts a rare and beautiful thing into the hands of people, whether it's on the internet, whether it's in a, at an event, whether it's on a boat, I don't care. As long as there's an opportunity for those rare and beautiful things to be found and to benefit the maker. Um, so whether it's a piece of artwork or a piece of music or, you know, if a photograph or a bottle of rum, I, yeah, I'm all about it. I think we should embrace it a hundred percent, especially if it gives it an ongoing life. I remember when we first started in 2008, bottles of Montagna rum, certain barrels showing up on um, eBay. And, you know, you were only quote unquote buying the bottle, like the glass bottle, but of course it always had rum in it. And, um, and I thought, how cool is that? That like somebody really loved barrel number 11 of Montagna rum. And now they're selling it on eBay and making way more money than I was. The, bu- the bummer was that that money never got back to me as the maker. NFTs, it's like you can, ke- you can connect the maker to every transaction that happens through time after that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thumbs up. I think we should stay relevant that way if we can. I just don't know how I can make all those really beautiful things and meet all the TTB requirements, labeling and formulas and, and everything and still have it pay at the end of the day, but we'll see. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I love how you explained it. Cause I think it, it really is about keeping the you know, giving back to the creators and and having them kind of maintain that ownership. Yeah. So we look forward to to hearing, you know, what what Montagna Distillers future looks like. And thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing your story and and giving us insight to all the work that you've done over the years and inspiring our listeners. Thank you. Yeah. And we know one of my favorite collaborations of the moment is with Southern Glacier in uh, Florida. And we're, you know, we actually have a, our own website to be able to sell it by montanyarum.com for the first time. Like that has been revolutionary for us. Um, but we couldn't have done it without that, that connection to this dis- distribution relationship in Florida. That's oh, wow. We'll have to look at that. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's super cool. Yeah, that's wonderful. 
Well, on behalf of the Served Up family, Karen, we just want to, you know, wish you all of our very best and just, you know, stay safe and just lots of good health during this time. So thank you and cheers to you. Thanks, you guys. What a pleasure talking with you. Come see me in, in Crested Butte when you can. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!